Well, it's uh, good to be together again this morning as we continue our series in Exodus. And really, a lot of what we've been in has been building up to this moment, the Passover, probably the most important event in the Old Testament. And as Zach mentioned kind of last week, there's kind of been a preview of what God was going to do. We, he mentioned how in Exodus 3, God told Moses, look, I'm going to do all these signs and wonders, yet Pharaoh is not going to listen. But then I will still bring you out anyways, and you will plunder the people on your way out. And this promise that, that he made to them is really actually the restatement of a much older promise found in Genesis chapter 15 to Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. And God said this to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God is a God who makes and keeps promises. And as I was thinking about this idea of him keeping promises, and I was thinking about how Zach used that idea of a movie trailer last week, what popped into my mind actually was the movie trailer um, of the movie Taken, which I actually haven't seen. But in the trailer, um, Liam Neeson's daughter is in Paris, and she gets kidnapped. And he's able to talk to the kidnappers right away on the phone. And he says, look, I have a very particular set of skills that makes me a nightmare to people like you. So if you let my daughter go now, this will be the end of it. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. Weighty words. And yet for his daughter, that promise was probably good news. Good news that her dad would come for her. But for those guys that kidnapped her, that was bad news. Because they had no idea who they were dealing with or the wrath that was about to descend on them. And in the same way, we have a similar situation here in Exodus. Where God has basically saying to Pharaoh, look, I have a very particular set of skills. And he displayed it last week, right? turning the Nile River into blood, sending gnats and frogs to cover the land, boils to break out on people, hail that can kill livestock, turning the land to darkness. And he told Moses before what to tell to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, in words reminiscent, actually, of the movie Taken. Verse 22 of chapter 4, he says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. From the moment Pharaoh enslaved God's people and tried to wipe out the male children, this is what he had coming. God is saying, I will do whatever it takes to rescue my child. That is good news for them, but bad news for Pharaoh and all who stand against him. Because Pharaoh has had a hard heart. Pharaoh, in Egyptian thought, is God. Why would he listen to God? He's God. He gets to decide what's right, and now the final showdown is about to happen. And God is saying, you have no idea who you're dealing with, Pharaoh. You have no idea the wrath that's about to come upon you if you don't let my children go, and he hasn't. So we're going to see this morning 
that God is going to show his glory, his greatness as a promise-keeping God. And that is bad news for those who reject him and shows up as judgment. But it is good news for those who trust in him for it shows up as salvation. And so we're going to look at this morning. His, his showing his glory and wonders in judgment. And God's showing his glory and wonder in salvation. And then we'll briefly wrap up with how are we to respond in trust and remembering as his people. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into the story. Father, this morning, I don't know where everyone else is coming from. What their weeks have been like, what burdens or thoughts are in their minds and hearts. But I pray that all of us this morning would see you for the God you really are. And there are some weighty things we are going to wrestle with this morning. And so I pray you would give us humble hearts. That we would lean in instead of having prideful, resistant hearts. And we would really hear and see what you're saying for our good. And help me now, even in weakness, to to speak your words for your glory. Amen. Let me start by reading Exodus 11, 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel." either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. At the end of the nine plagues, Pharaoh tells Moses, get out of my sight. I don't want to see you again. Next time I see your face, I'm going to kill you. That's that's what all of the plagues have built up in Pharaoh, this anger, this resistance. But God is telling Moses, as he's heading out the door, Moses, there's one more plague coming. And this time it will work. But only on the other side. Pharaoh will let his people go. And you can almost imagine as Moses is kind of heading out the door, that verses 4 to 8 is him kind of stopping and turning around to Pharaoh and saying, hey, one more thing before I go. I remember something God told me before. You think that you can set yourself up as God. You think you can resist him. You think you can hold on to his children. But there is judgment coming, Pharaoh. Every firstborn in Egypt will die. Your son, all the way down to the firstborn of the livestock. Judgment is coming. 
And maybe you've heard this story so many times that you gloss over the weightiness of this. Like there should be a weight that settles on us when we read these words. They're fearful words. When you read in verse 6 that there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as has never been nor ever will be again. And then you hear that and you look at verse 10 and and the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh did not let the people of Israel go. And you hear that and go, what do I make of this? What do I make of a God who would judge in this way? How do we think about it? As I was reflecting this passage, I was thinking actually about that movie Taken, and thinking about how when, when Liam Neeson goes and probably takes out bad guy after bad guy on the way to rescuing his daughter... I'm guessing if you're watching that film, what you're feeling is this, like, cheering him on. Like, yes, he's getting one step closer to bringing justice, to rescuing, to redeeming. And it's so good for us to remember that's kind of what's going on here, that Pharaoh is no innocent. He's a bad guy. He's an unjust ruler who has enslaved a whole people group, who has had them beaten, who has tried to wipe out and kill all the male children. Pharaoh is no innocent in this story. Neither should we see that Pharaoh is a puppet, as if he's completely beyond his control and God's just pulling all the strings and him doing whatever he wants. No, he's not a puppet. He's a character in the story. And in Scripture, we see that God is sovereign. He is writing the story And it's true that he is hardening Pharaoh's heart. You cannot escape that. And at the same time, we see that about half of the references to his hard heart is that Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. That he's making his choices. And the two things are both true. And there's mystery. How does that fit together? I don't know. I'm not God. But they're both there. And just as in whatever favorite story you have, I'm sure you don't blame the writer for the violence done by the bad guys. So here we see that God is the writer, and yet Pharaoh is going to be held to account for what he's done wrong. God will judge him. And not only that, but actually Pharaoh has been warned again and again and again. It's not like God is quick to bring judgment on him, but in chapter 8, verse 19, the the magicians come to him and say, this is the finger of God. In chapter 10, verse 7, we read that his servants come to him and say, Let them go! Don't you see we're ruined? Let them go! And here in our passage in verse 3, we see that pretty much everyone, it says that the, the people of Israel had favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the, the people, that is the Egyptian people, but not Pharaoh. Everyone else seems to be clued into what's going on to some degree, but not Pharaoh. He has a hard heart, and God is warned again and again and again. But maybe you might ask, okay, I I get that, but but what about the people? Why, Why judgment on all the other people of Egypt? And here's where our individualistic mindset is kind of tough, because an ancient culture understood this, that the good king provided good benefits to the people, that bad king brings harm to the people. That's how life works. But also, I think it's helpful to remember that, even thinking about our own context, we understand that when a people are complicit in wickedness, there's guilt that gets attached to them. The people of Egypt are not innocent either. 
But I also think there's a hint in this story of something else. That back in the plague of hail, we read that some of the Egyptians feared God and brought their livestock in to take shelter, and they were spared. And then chapter 12, verse 38, we read that a mixed multitude, that is, a mixed ethnic group, leaves Egypt with the Israelites. That's not just ethnic Jews that go out, but other people. And we read later in in some of the stories of Numbers and Leviticus that there were Egyptians with the people of Israel. Maybe they were some who heard what was about to come and took refuge. Maybe. It's a hint. But either way, I think what we need to realize is that God is not quick to bring judgment. He's been so slow and patient. And neither is he unjust in his judgment because he cannot let the guilty go unpunished. He will judge in the end. He will eventually go out in judgment, as verse 4 says. And when he comes, the creator God perfect, brilliant in his holiness, in his majesty, no one can stand before him. Moses, later in the story of Exodus, will say, God, I want to see your face. Moses, this great leader, and God says to him, Moses, you can't, you'd die. You would die if you saw me face to face. Just as the sun is brilliant and we can't look at it, even with an eclipse and not have our eyes damaged, so too God in his moral brilliance and purity and goodness and righteousness, we cannot stand before him on our own. The problem with this story is not with God, friends. The problem is that we often have made God too small. That we have minimized the holy creator God and said he doesn't get to be the judge, I do. We've minimized his holiness and said, he doesn't really mind all this sin and injustice. He doesn't really mind that. But he does, because he's righteous, he's good, he's holy. And just as the sun, when it rises, you cannot deny its brilliance, so God, too, one day everyone will see that he is good and righteous. But the question is whether you see it willingly or unwillingly. Because God will, as verse 9 says, multiply his wonders in the land so everyone would see and know he is God and not Pharaoh. But will Pharaoh see it willingly or unwillingly? Well, let's keep reading the story in chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. 
And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Well, here's your answer, right? Verse 30. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. They chose the hard way of seeing that God is God. And this is stunning. And finally, Pharaoh does what he should have done a long time ago. He calls Moses in, verse 31, 32, and says, get out. Take all the people, take all your stuff, just go. Get out. And finally, Pharaoh has realized that he is not God. He is not in control. God is. But it's not just that the people get let go, but God is keeping his promise to them because he promised that they would leave with many possessions and plunder, and we see that in verse 36. The Lord gave the people a favor in the sight of the Egyptians that they let them have whatever they asked, and they plundered the Egyptians. And this is stunning. This is what conquering armies do, but this is not a conquering army. It's slaves. Slaves of the most powerful empire in the world at the time, and they don't just get to leave without fighting. They leave without fighting and plundering the people while they go. No slave rebellion has ever done anything like this in the history of the world. It's because God is at work, keeping his promise for his people. And we see that he's keeping his promise in verse 37, that it's not just a small family, but he promised Abraham a great nation, and a great nation is what goes out. Many, many people going out. And we see God's goodness to Israel in keeping his promises, but man, judgment on Egypt. Because God will not allow you to think the moon is the most brilliant thing in the solar system when there is the sun. He will not let Pharaoh or anyone exalt themselves and say, I get to be God. In the end, every knee will bow and acknowledge that he's God. The question is, is it willing or unwilling? The question is, is it seeing his glory in judgment or another way? And that's the good news. There is another way to see God as glorious. And it's how you respond to him. And maybe looking back at verse 11, chapter 11, verse 7, you might think, well, the difference is an ethnic one. Because God says, I'll make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. It's, it's an ethnic thing that God's doing, but, but it's not. Because in chapter 12, verse 38, we read it was a mixed multitude that went out. In fact, of all the people that leave the land that are adults, only two of them will live to see the promised land. Joshua, the leader, and Caleb, who's not an Israelite. He's a Kenizzite. He's not ethnically Jewish. So of the two people that make it, 50% of them aren't even Israelite. It's not an ethnic thing that God's doing. So what is he doing? Well, let's read the start of chapter 12 to see. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, that they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. See, it's not just being an Israelite that saves. As even if an Israelite was to go outside the door of his house, he too could be judged. Now, the only thing that saves is being found in a house covered with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. We see that so clear in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Only the blood can rescue. Because in verse 30 of chapter 12, when we read that in every house there was someone dead, that's true even of the Israelite houses. It just was a lamb that was dead as a substitute. Because what we need to remember is this is not just a story of God liberating oppressed peoples. It's a story of a holy God calling out a people for himself to be his special and holy people. There's a big problem, though. His people are not any better than the Egyptians. We're going to see that as the story goes on. They continually, royally mess things up and are not faithful to God like they should be. There is no difference in and of themselves. So how can the Israelites interact with a holy God? The answer is sacrifice. Substitute. That's why verse 5 of chapter 12 says that the lamb must be without blemish. Only a perfect lamb can die to cover imperfect people, to have a relationship with a perfect God. Only a lamb without blemish. And this isn't Food, this is a sacrifice that's killing the lamb. That's why in verse 10 it says, you'll let none of it remain in the morning. Anything that remains you shall burn. This isn't leftovers. This was a sacrifice. Enough lamb to cover. 
the people. Which is why in verse 4 it says, if your house is too small, partner up, and you shall take account of how much people can eat, and that's how much lamb you sacrifice. You choose a lamb with enough meat to cover the people in the house. No more, no less. Enough lamb to cover their need for salvation. Because God, even in his own people, cannot let guilt go unpunished. One of my favorite fiction stories I've been reading lately is a series called The Ashtown Burials. And at, towards the end, there's, the characters have this desperate battle, and they're, they're debating whether to wake these two stone giants named Wrath and Justice. But the problem is, these giants, when they're awoken, kill everyone they encounter. And when one character asks, well, why is that? His mentor says, because no one is pure in mind, heart, body, and soul. There are stains in all of us that the brothers see, and they passed just judgment. For they are justice and wrath and do not know mercy. It's true. But thankfully, God is not just justice. God also is a God of mercy, which is why God provides this substitute for the people. It wasn't Moses that came up with this idea. God gave the people this provision. He said, I know if I came down and I entered your house, Israelites, you would be dead too. So I'm going to provide a way of salvation, a way of escape. And all you need to do is trust and obey. See that in verse 50, chapter 12? All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel up out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Just as you can't look at the sun in an eclipse without those special glasses, so you cannot stand before a holy God without your soul being protected and covered by the blood of God's sacrifice for you. You need that. You can't stand before him. Because just like the sun, God in his very essence is holy and righteous, and we are not. And so he provides a way. And what I love about his way is that it's not some crazy list of accomplishments It's simply to trust in his provision and obey. Remember a professor of mine once mentioned this, and I think it helps us think about this, but he said, imagine two families. On one family, the dad gathers his wife and his kids and says, guys, you won't believe it. After years, hundreds of years of being slaves, God is going to save us. Let's take the lamb, let's let's kill it, let's celebrate, let's paint the door, and let's sing praises because tonight we're getting out of here, and God will save us. And next door, there's another dad. He gathers his family and goes, I I don't know, guys. This whole thing seems a little weird to me. I don't know what's actually going to happen tonight. But you know what? Let's kill the lamb. Let's put its blood on the doorpost because maybe God will show up and save. Which family gets saved that night? Both. Because it's not the amount of faith you have. It's what your faith is in. Faith even in God, a little bit of faith in God's perfect remedy for us is faith enough to save. Because the same is true for us today. God has warned 
that he will come one day in judgment. And no one will be able to stand before him in that day unless they take shelter in his provision, in his sacrifice. But the thing is, a lamb was never enough. A lamb is just white out. Right? You can, you've got the mistake on your paper, you cover it up with white out and write over it, but the mistake is still there. You haven't actually gotten rid of it. You just covered it up. And over enough time, that whiteout could flake off and fall off, and the mistake is still there. It's not a permanent solution. Because how could a lamb be a substitute for humanity? So God provided another lamb. 1,200 years later, John the Baptist would look out and see Jesus walking up, and he would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the lamb we need. Jesus. A lamb without blemish. He was perfect. He, he lived a perfect life. Never said anything wrong. Never did anything wrong. Never thought anything wrong for his whole life. Something I can't imagine doing for a day. And he did it for his whole life. Without blemish for us. And not just that, but there has to be enough lamb to cover all the sins. So how can there be enough in one man to cover up all the sins of so many people throughout history? Well, because Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God. And in his infiniteness, there is more than enough of Jesus to cover every and all sins of those who trust in him. And not only was he the lamb, but God said, look, I'm not going to bring judgment on you if you don't want to. Instead, what I'll do is I'll offer up my firstborn to die for you so you don't have to. What's the most well-known verse in the Bible, probably? John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, or we might as well say his firstborn son. So whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the kind of God we serve, who is willing to give up his own firstborn to save in his kindness, in his mercy. We don't deserve that. We can't earn that, and yet he gives it. And he says, look, you can experience my judgment or you can take refuge in the provision I've given in Jesus. And it's not just for the Jewish people. It's for all people so that one day all those who have trusted in Jesus will sing, worthy is the lamb who is slain for you have ransomed a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what God's doing. And all you need is to trust. So how do you respond to this? Maybe some of you are saying, God? Who's God? I don't know God. Don't need him. Like Pharaoh. Or maybe some of you might be saying, that sounds great, but why? Why does God only save this way? Why couldn't God save some other way? It seems so exclusive and arrogant of him. Why, why couldn't there be other ways to be saved? You could wrestle with that question in your pride. But pride is what led Pharaoh to judgment and destruction. Or you could humble yourself and say, wow, praise God, there is a way of salvation. I was drowning and a lifeline showed up. I'm not going to argue about whether there's four other lifelines. I'm just going to grab on because I know that I need Jesus. And maybe this morning, that's where you're at. Maybe this is the first time you've really heard this. 
Maybe it's the thousandth time. Maybe you're realizing you haven't actually really acknowledged your need to trust. You haven't seen your great desperation at being imperfect before a perfect God. And this morning, you can simply say, God, I'm not perfect. I can't stand before you. But would you save me through Jesus? And when you do that, it's like painting the blood over the doorposts of your life. And God sees it and says, I will save. But it's not just this one-time call to trust. But there is this call for God's people to ongoingly remember so they don't forget and drift. We see this in chapter 12, verse 42. It says, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. God knows we're forgetful people. And so he calls us to remember and gives physical acts to the Israelites to have fulfillment in Jesus for us. So he gives them this right. And you can read about it in chapter 13, verses 11 to 16, that every time a firstborn is born, whether a human or an animal, they would have to sacrifice to remember that they needed a sacrifice to be saved in Egypt. Every time, think about that, one of your friends maybe has their first kid, back in that day, they would have to go to the temple and sacrifice, and it would be this tangible reminder, we need sacrifice to save us before God. But now, that firstborn sacrifice is Jesus, and we trust in him, and that's how we obey this. And then he also gave two feasts for them to remember every year, and you can read about the Passover in chapter 12, verses 43 to to 49, but... Every year on the day that they left Egypt, they were to reenact this night. They were to take a lamb and slit its throat and put the blood on the doorpost and eat bitter herbs and remember what it cost for God to save them, their need for that salvation. And and in the instructions for that, in verse 48, we see again this. It's not an ethnic thing. It's a faith thing because he says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. That was, that was the sign that you trusted in God back then. You were circumcised if you were a male. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. It's the same for both, Israelite and non-Israelite. The only people that get to eat of this feast are those who have trusted in God. It's a faith thing. And now, we as God's people this side of the cross celebrate the Passover lamb yearly with Easter. We remember the cost. And we celebrate it weekly in communion. When we take the bread and dip it in the juice, we remember that Jesus said, I'm the lamb. This bread is a symbol of my body given for you. This cup is a symbol of my blood that was shed to save you. Eat and drink and remember the lamb that was slain. And that's why it's the one part of our service that we say, if you haven't trusted yet in Jesus, we ask you not to partake, but instead to consider what they point to and actually trust in him. Because this is only for those who trust and become part of the family of God. But then there's also the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which you can read about in chapter 13, verses 3 to 10. And and they were to, for seven days after Passover, eat bread with no leaven in it, so flat bread to remember that they had to eat on the run as they were fleeing out of Egypt, that their pilgrims still awaiting their true home, and they were to cut out all yeast 
for those seven days. And it was so serious that chapter 12, verse 19 tells us that for seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. And if anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. That's how serious this was. You don't walk in obedience to this. You might as well not be part of the family. And the Apostle Paul helps us think, well, what does this mean for us this side of the cross? In 1 Corinthians 5, he says this, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not by eating physical bread, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, look, that bread was a symbol. Now the way we celebrate is every week, every day as we remember what Jesus did, we cut out the sin from our life because we want to love and follow him. That's what it means to trust and remember him. And what I love is that in all these reminders, we see God's kindness, not just to save us, but to give us things to help us remember. And you see this, the importance of remembering in chapter 13, verse 14, when he says, And when in time to come your son or daughter asks you, What does it mean? What does all this stuff mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. That's what he says for every single one of these three reminders. And it's almost like Moses, God speaking through Moses, saying, look, remember the why of these commands. Remember what I've done for you, how I've saved you, and that's what's going to motivate your obedience. So, city group, Sunday morning, as we're talking with people and they're struggling with things, do we say, well, here's what God said, go do it. Or do we pause with them and say, let me remind you of what God did for you in Jesus. Let me remind you of the why we wrestle and fight to cut out sin, strive to live holy lives. Parents, when, when you're raising your kids and they're stepping in a line or maybe they're grumbling about why do we have to come to church or why can't I do what my friends do? Do you just drop the law on them or do you say, let me tell you what Jesus did? That's why. That's why. When you come on Sunday morning, do you come out of roteness? Because this is what you're supposed to do. Or do you come praying on the way in, God, help me remember this morning. I so easily forget and I drift. Would you help me remember as I sing who you are? Would you help me remember in the sermon? Would you help me remember in communion of who you are and all you've done for me so that I would live for you? Don't let this just be rote, God. Help me to remember so that I won't drift, so that I'll continue to walk by faith and trust. Because God is a glorious, promise-keeping God. And that means you could encounter him as the God who keeps promise to judge the guilty. Or you can encounter God as Savior, as loving Father, if you trust in him and his provision of Jesus for you. So, Vine family, let us trust and remember and help each other remember and trust in God's provision of salvation for us so that we won't encounter him as a God of judgment, 
but as a God who saves for our good and his glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father, this morning, there's so much in your word. There's even things we, we didn't get time to look at or touch on, but I pray that the things that have been seen and heard would root down in our hearts and lives. That for those who don't know you or trust in you as Father yet, that they would hear and move from death to life as they trust in your provision of Jesus. I pray, Father, for those who today who are struggling and who are discouraged and who are, are weak in their faith, who, who have a hard time seeing you as a God who would love them through your son, Jesus, that you would take this passage and sink it down into their hearts that they would know that if they've trusted in Christ, you're not a judge for them. You're a loving Father who keeps his promises and saves and rescues and delivers. And I pray for those who feel strong in their faith, that you would just continue to encourage them and they would encourage those around them who are weak or discouraged in faith so we might trust and remember and one day arrive in the promised land of the new heaven and new earth and worship when we see you face to face and say, worthy are you, Jesus, for you are the lamb that was slain to save us from all nations. For your glory, amen.